At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We all have questions, and we're all looking for the answers. But sometimes, navigating the answers to cultural issues through the lens of the gospel can be challenging. Join us for our Asking for a Friend series, where each week we'll answer tough questions and provide you with gospel-centered answers that you can share with a friend. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible or electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're actually going to be in Genesis chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, we're not going to um, read all of those um, books, but we're going to be in each one of them uh, for a few moments as we uh, are continuing our series this morning, Asking for a Friend. Now, imagine for a moment... Years and years ago, thousands of years ago, you were a person trying to, you had a piece of land that you wanted to sell. And so you're like, well, how can I measure this land to know how big it is so that I can know how much to ask for it? And so what do you do? Well, you begin looking around your body and you're like, well, what can I use to measure? I could use my arm. I could use my body. Why don't I use my foot? Right, So what you do is you take your feet and you start walking end to end and you're counting every step and you're like one foot, two foot, three foot, four foot. And imagine you go all the way around your property and you realize that your property is 3,000 feet by 2,000 feet. And so in total you have um, 6 million square feet. And so you're like, okay, I'm going to go sell this. And so you begin to advertise out there that you've got 6 million square feet of land that you want to sell. And you have an interested party that wants to come over and they're like, hey, I want to look at your land. And so they begin surveying the land themselves. And this person that surveys the land actually has bigger feet than you do. And so he begins counting and, he, and by his estimations, he comes and says, no, actually the land is 25,000 or 2,500 feet by 1,500 feet. So by my estimations, that's 3,750,000 square feet. Do you see the problem? And you inherently have a problem now because I'm trying to sell you 6,000 square feet of land and the person wanting to purchase it says, no, no, it's only 3,750,000 square feet of land. Now we have a huge problem. Well, the problem here is not based on the land. There's nothing wrong with the land. But what's wrong is the measurement, what we choose to use as the measuring. Right, So the person is buying the land always wants to find someone that has bigger feet so the land actually becomes smaller. And the person selling the land wants to find someone that measures it off with small feet. So they go around looking for, you got small feet, you got small feet, okay, you're going to measure my land. You got big feet, okay, I'm going to buy this land. I want. So you can see the confusion, right? When the standard of measurement changes, chaos always ensues, disagreements come about, and difficulties come with it. Again, the problem was not the size of the land, but the standardization of the foot. For every person's foot is different. And so for centuries and years and years and years, this disagreement continued to, went on, continued to go on until King Henry I of England passed a law. 
He says, from now on, the standard measurement of a foot will be 12 inches, which was actually the size of his foot. And so even today, we still use Henry I's 12-inch foot as the measurement for all of our feet. And he's helped bring clarity to the chaos and the confusion now goes away because a foot is a foot is a foot. Whenever we apply different standards, there's always going to be confusion, disagreements, and dissensions. And this is not only true about the standard of measurements, it's also true about the standards of morality. When we think about what's right and wrong, good and bad, in our world today, there's so much confusion because people want to use different standards of measurements. People are seeking to use different standards of morality. But I want to tell you this morning, just as Henry I created the standard of measurement, our creator of God has given us the standards for morality and holiness. Right? King Henry was king, so he had the right to to do that. He, He could legislate the fact that a foot is 12 inches. Well, how greater does God, who is creator of all things... Get the right to set the standard for morality. And because he's creator of all things, he is the one that gets to decide what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. And if he is the standard, then he has the responsibility. If he gets the right to set the standard, then he has the responsibility to allow us to know what those standards are. And he has done so in his word. He's clearly communicated to us what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what we should pursue and what we should reject, what we should embrace and what we should keep away. The challenge today that we face is that we live in a culture that says what, right, what is right and wrong, good and bad is not determined by God, but rather it comes from within ourselves. We are told that we are autonomous, that we have the opportunity to decide what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. This ideology that is prevalent in every part of our culture today is in direct opposition to the way God has created creation. This battle for standards of right and wrong, where's truth determined, is truth something that is discovered, is, is truth something that I define, or has truth been something that has been defined for me that I live in? These, these are the, the battle that's going on, and it's causing a lot of confusion in many areas of people's lives. And probably one of the most dangerous areas that this confusion is impacting today is the way in which people think about their identity and their sexuality. The way God designed our identity and sexuality are being undermined by the voices of popular culture. So as I was preparing for today, I'm like, man, why not just come back from sabbatical swinging? (laughs) Like, why not, you know, Jesus loves the little children of the world. Okay, he does, which we know that would have been the easy one to preach, but I, I really feel like we as the church need to prepare ourselves for how to engage our culture. 
We, we can't sit in the sidelines with, with ear, earbuds on and masks over our eyes so that we don't see or we don't hear. That, that's not doing anything for the lost and dying world that we live in. But better yet, how can we be better prepared to engage people in truth and in love? Because that's the reality. People don't need to know what other people think. What people need is they need to know Jesus. And so today we're continuing our series and I'm ending the series today asking for a friend. In this series, we are giving biblical answers to some of the toughest questions that Christians and unbelievers are currently asking. The question that we're going to tackle this morning is a difficult one. And my prayer is, is that we allow the word of God to preach. I will admit, I may say something wrong this morning because I'm fallible. But I can tell you this, that God's word is infallible. It is without error. And he's given us so that we can know everything that we need to know about life and godliness. And so today, I pray that we allow God's word to speak. And I'm going to try to help God's word to engage and connect with our culture And I realize I may say something wrong this morning, but know that my heart is coming from a place of where I want to speak the truth in love. So many times I think the church has spoken the truth and they've forgotten love. And sometimes I think the the, the church has has gone the air of speaking love without talking about truth. And so I, I think neither of those are helpful, but rather we need to hear the truth the hard truth, and mix it with love. And so today, we're gonna answer the tough question, why is homosexuality a sin? This was actually a question that um, as we've reached out in social media and and, and allowed other people through uh, our website and through Facebook and some of the other places to write in questions like, hey, what are some of the questions you have for the church? This is one of the ones that rose to the top. And so why not address it? If people are asking the question, let's answer it from a biblical, loving perspective. And so that's what we're going to do. Why is homosexuality a sin? And today we're going to see that even though the cultural climate of our day makes this a question that we have to wrestle with, the Bible does speak to it. And he clearly gives us standards of how we are to live. And so today we're going to see that God's view about homosexuality brings clarity to the cultural confusion. God's view, God's design, brings clarity to the cultural confusion. We're gonna see three ways in which this is true today and how we are gonna answer the question. The first truth that we're going to see this morning from Genesis chapter two, beginning in verse 18, is that God's design for intimacy, identity, and sexuality God clearly defines to us in scripture, he designs, he gives us his design for intimacy, identity, and sexuality. Look with me now at Genesis chapter two, beginning in verse 18. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. 
And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place where the flesh, closed it up with flesh. And the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So Genesis chapter 2, we see this description of the creation of woman and man. As God has been creating, we see he goes through creation, and on every day he says at the end of the day, and it was good. He created the heavens, and it was good. He created the earth, and it was good. But he gets to the creation of man, and after he creates man, he says this, that it is very good. Above all creation, man is very good. And why is man very good? It's because we are made in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. And so God's been going through all creation. Everything's good, everything's good, everything's great. And then we get to this point in scripture, this point in history, and the very first thing that's not good is man's loneliness. It is not good for man to be alone. Man was not created to live in isolation, but man was created to live in relationship. And man also needed a helper that was fit for him. Now imagine what's going on in this scenario. As as God has created all the beasts of the field and all of the sea and all of the air, one by one they're coming before Adam. And as Adam looks at, at chickens and, or chickens and roosters and, and cows and bulls, he, he sees something strange about each one of them. As he's naming them, he, he notices that each one of them have a fit. Each one of them have a counterpart. Each one of them have a helper that allows them to fulfill the God's command to be fruitful and multiply. Right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So everything has a suitable helper. And imagine as Adam's going through this process of naming all the animals, seeing that they all have fits, they all have helpers, he looks to himself and he's like, none of these are a fit for me. None of these are a counterpart to me. And God sees and God knows it's not good for man to be alone, so Adam needs a helper. Adam needs a companion. And so what does he do? Causes man to fall asleep. And as Adam is asleep, he takes from his side, he takes a rib from Adam's side and creates a woman, a perfect fit, a perfect helper. The symbolic significance of the rib is that the man and woman are a fit for each other as companions both sexually and socially. That's why it has to be a rib. The the rib is significant of that. Right, from every other beast, he created them from the ground. But for Eve, the possible fit, the best fit, came from Adam's side to be his companion. And verse 24 goes on to describe the intimacy that is to be shared between man and woman through the gift of marriage. By, by God's design, a man and a woman are to leave their parents and be joined together in the most intimate relationship, human relationship. That's possible. The most intimate human relationship you can have is not mother-daughter, father-son, best friend. No, it's husband and wife. Why? Because in that one sacred relationship, 
There's an opportunity for intimacy, true vulnerability to be expressed and experienced. So that in this one relationship, you're able to stand before your spouse and be naked and not ashamed. I, I don't know of a more beautiful picture of intimacy. Right? When you're able to have a relationship where you can truly be who you are. Like truly be who, and most of the time we're not who we really are. We're always playing some part. You go to work, you're playing a part, right? You go to the grocery store, you're playing a part. You go to the movies, you're playing a part. You're playing someone else. But at home, in your marriage relationship, you are who you are. Even though you may be able to hide it for a little bit, you are who you are. And so by God's design, the most intimate relationship is to be between husband and wife between male and female. Why? Because women are created to be an equal fit for man, equal in value, equal in purpose, but distinct in their identity according to their gender. Right? It's by God's design because it's through the gender of male and female that a couple things are able to happen. One, procreation is able to happen. Right? You're able, no other way can, can the procreation take place between other than a man and a woman? So the different in design, so that man and woman can fit together, but they're clearly equal. They're both made in the image of God, but they're distinct in their roles. See, God gives boundaries for sexuality in creation. Sex is given for a couple of purposes. One, sex is given for the purpose of procreation. Second, sex is given for pleasure. It's to be enjoyed. It's something that only husband and wife can experience together because in that act, the soul of the husband and the soul of the wife mingle together to make them one. But not only that, God has given sex for a sacred connection. God created marriage to be a lifelong covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Now I get it. Life is filled with complexity. Right? Not everything is black and white. I get that. There are a lot of questions that we live in every single day that uh, we, we walk through that don't have clear-cut answers. Anytime we, many times we're faced with questions that live in the gray Meaning that not every question, not every decision we make has a moral absolute or defined goodness or badness. Right? Not every question is, is, is of that utmost. Right? Imagine like going to Baskin Robbins. Right? I love going to Baskin Robbins and my favorite ice cream is baseball nut. If you've never had that, like after service, some of you are like, I'm going there now. Like, Go to Baskin Robbins, baseball nut, it's great because it's got cashews in there, it's got, got raspberry and all of that. But you know what? If you don't like baseball nut, it's not a, a moral goodness or badness. I prefer baseball nut, right? And sometimes I go to Baskin Robbins and guess what? They don't have baseball nuts. For me to choose chocolate or, or strawberry cheesecake is, is not a moral, there's, there's no moral decision in that. Right? In that sense, I can operate in not black or white, but I can operate in the gray based on my preferences. Right? You, we have a lot of freedom that God has given us to live in preferences. 
But the challenge is you can't bring preferences over into moral absolutes that God has designed. We get that mixed up. Oh, you have a lot of, you, you can prefer anchovies, you can prefer uh, pepperoni on your pizza, you can do that, but you can't change God's design as it relates to gender. You just can't do that. Even though you may feel a certain way about something. Our feelings don't matter when it comes to the reality of the truth. When it comes to humanity's identity, sexuality, our decisions cannot be based on our preferences. Our decisions need to be based on how God has clearly defined his design. Any deviation from God's design for sexuality is a sin. I want to open this up. Okay, clearly, the the question that was brought to us as as the topic of this sermon is is about, uh, about this size. When we're talking about God's design for sexuality, that means a lot of things are outside those boundaries. So the young couple that's like fooling around in the back of the car, outside of God's design. So like sexting or doing pornography, all outside of God's design. Cohabitating before you're married is outside of God's design. All of these things are outside of God's design and God clearly says is sinful. How our heart responds to God's design and God's standards says a lot of where we are in relation to God. See, I understand that it's not easy at times to, to live, at God's, live with inside of God's design. But when we come to understand God's design, those that are children of God, it does something to us. We, we, inside of our hearts, we're like, Oh, that hurts. Oh, or I didn't even know. I, I was living this way. I didn't know. But now I know. And how we respond to the truth says a lot of how we view God. Either God's standards are good and we embrace them, or we reject God's standards and choose to continue with our personal preferences. Let me move on. So we see God's design. Secondly, I want us to see that homosexuality is a distortion of God's design. Look with me in Romans chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 18. So it'll be up on the screen, but if you want to give you a second just to flip there. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. And we're going to see that homosexuality is a distortion of God's design. It says in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him. 
But they became futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts, and they were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to the dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relationships with those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So what Paul is talking about, I know we're jumping right into the middle of a larger argument that Paul is making, but what Paul is basically saying is that since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, since that time that man rejected God's design, man has continued to reject God's design. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul's trying to show the depths to which man has rejected God. Instead of choosing to follow God, man has chose to walk in disobedience and ungodliness. Man has tried to suppress the truth of God. And in this passage, we see three exchanges that man has given. First, the first exchange was instead of giving glory to God, man gives glory to the created instead of the creator. The second exchange, that instead of worshiping God, Man has chosen to worship the created instead of the creator. And then the third exchange that we see is the culmination of man's rebellion against God comes as men and women exchange God's design for sex and marriage with unnatural relationships. So because man has fallen to give glory to God and give thanks to God, God hands them over to their sexual impurity. God gives them over. He he describes this practice of homosexuality as being shameful, unnatural, indecent, and a perversion. So it's, it's something to be rejected. It's something to turn away from. Like Paul is even writing into a Greco-Roman culture where homosexuality was actually being elevated. There, there was even an, a teaching that was prominent in that culture to say that sexual, homosexuality is to be praised and that regular uh, relationships between men and women are to be rejected. And so you have that going on, but then you also have, Paul is writing here to, to, um, to Jewish people where we all know that in the Old Testament, God clearly says that homosexuality is to be avoided. And so you, you have this culture that's praising it, and then you've got this culture that says, no, 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 it's absolutely to be avoided at all costs. And Paul comes in, and he says, now as believers, as Christians, we're to avoid. We're to avoid living in this way because it's, it's not by God's design. Homosexuality is a distortion of God's design. Even though our culture wants the church to affirm this lifestyle, Christians simply can't make homosexuality compatible with Scripture. Now, I love how Pastor Alistair Begg says this. He says, culture has created a false dichotomy for, the, for believers. Either believers are forced to, this false dichotomy, either we're forced to hate or affirm 
Right? He's, he says, that's the, that according to the culture, that's all we get a chance to choose. And he comes back, he says, no, the Christian actually does neither. We do not hate and we do not affirm. We cannot be hate because of God's word and we cannot affirm because of God's word. We have to be prepared as believers to say we are unprepared to rewrite the Bible in order to accommodate a society that needs the Bible and needs the Jesus who, the, who is the focus of the Bible. This is challenging in our day. And we must walk in a way to say the Bible is not a book of hatred. The Bible is a book of love where Jesus comes in and he heals the brokenhearted and he takes all rebels and makes them children of God. You see, each one of us is a rebel and the reason that God has given us his word is two things. First, God's word is a mirror so that when we look into it, we see all the ways we are rebels against God. When God says, hey, this is the standard, and you come to God's word, and you're like, I didn't do that, I can't do that, I didn't do that, oh, I did that. So this is a mirror that allows us to look at ourselves and see ourselves as rebels. But also, this is a saving book because it allows us to see that Jesus took our rebellion, everything that separates us from God, and Jesus comes in and heals us from all of those things that make us rebels and gives us life once again. He takes our sin away. He takes our punishment for our rebellion, and he cures us from the curse of sin and frees us from the slavery of sin. So lastly, so far we've seen God's design for sexuality God, we've seen that homosexuality distorts God's design. And lastly, God desires that you do not walk in disobedience. God desires that none of us walk in disobedience. Now, flip on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse 9. We're just going to look at two verses there, or three verses there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul's writing now, and he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the adulterer, nor the, nor the idolater, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such we were, some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. What Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians, he's writing to believers to remind them that there is a difference between the way the followers of Christ live, who are the righteous, and the way of the unbeliever, the unrighteous. Paul reminds us that every person is born with a sinful nature. You're born with a sinful nature. I'm born with a sinful nature. That means each one of us, our sinful nature might look a little bit different, meaning that we might, our, our sin might, might take on a different flavor, you might have a certain bentness, maybe it's the, the same bentness that you inherited from your parents, but each one of us have a certain bent towards sin that's present. Each part of a person, it has our own temptations and our own tendencies towards sin. And so Paul lists some of these tendencies towards sin that are present among those that are outside the Christian community. He, he's not talking about those who occasionally slip up into sin. 
He's talking about um, those who have made sin the pattern of their life. So those who have willfully chose to walk in the cravings of their sinful nature. And so he mentions, mentions some of them. First he gives and talks about sexual immorality. He's talking about any of those who are involved in any kind of premarital or extramarital sexual relations. And goes on and then says idolaters. Those are mentioned here because of their close association to the sexually immoral and other pagan religions. Adulterers, those who break the sanctity of the marital um, covenant. Goes on and says male prostitutes, those who have served in pagan religious sexual rituals. Homosexual offenders, those who practice homosexuality. So he's talking about these sins and he's, he's saying these are sins that get in the way. If you, if you walk in them, if you make them your lifestyle, then you cannot inherit the kingdom of God because it's, that's outside of the character of those that have been redeemed. Then he goes on and t- turns into social sins. He says thieves, those that steal, those that are greedy, those that are drunkard, those that are slanderers or swindlers. Right, all of those things. If, 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 what I love what Paul does here is he doesn't give us an exhaustive list of all sin in the world. But what Paul gives us here is a list that is fully inclusive. Because you and I find ourselves on that list somewhere. You and I are sinful people that are rebels against God, that have looked at God's design and said, no, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. And what Paul is saying here is it's, it's in, those people that live in these sinful tendencies that give their life over to them, it's incapable, they're incapable of inheriting the kingdom of God on their own. So you and I are incapable of inheriting the kingdom of God because we're sinful. But it's only through the blood of Christ, it's only through faith in the work of Christ that we can be made clean, that we can be made whole. Verse 11 reminds the Corinthian believers that they too once lived as an unbeliever, but now they've been changed. So we used to live as unbelievers, and now we are in Christ, we live new. And it says here that we have been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So when you come to faith in Christ, you're washed, you're cleansed from your sins through your faith in Christ. Then believers are sanctified. That means that we are set apart from the world. We, we go from being an enemy of God to being a child of God. So we're set apart. We are different in nature. We're different in category. We're different in, even in the way that the Lord looks at us. So we're sanctified. And then we are justified. That means we are declared innocent before God. So we once were Swindlers, liars, disobedient, homosexuals, adulterers, idolaters. But when you come to faith in Christ, God picks you up from who you were and now makes you a child of God that is washed, that is sanctified, that is justified. You're totally different. You're completely changed. And because of that, your desires change. You come to see, though you may still be tempted to live in that way, you come to see, you know that that is not good for you. And you have a a sense inside of you that there's conviction towards that. That says, hey, you may slip up every once in a while, but as a child of God, you say, I'm not going back there. 
Therefore, believers are not to give themselves over to living out their sinful temptations. You know, it's interesting to me that in our culture today, that homosexuality is so closely tied to a person's identity. Right, where people say, I identify as homosexual, or I identify as this, or I identify as that. Have you ever noticed that it's like the only time in our world that we identify ourselves by our sin? Right? I, I don't walk around saying, hey, I identify as a swindler. Right? Hey, hey, nice to meet you. I identify as an adulterer. Right? I identify as, hey, guess what? I'm greedy. Nice to meet you. Right? We don't do that. Right? That's, that's not what we do, but in some way, our culture has taken a sin and it has converted it and contorted it and turned it all around so somehow a sin is identity. That's part of my identity. I was born that way. Well, yeah, we all were born sinful. We all were born with a temptation, a lust for sin. Right? You even have a child, right? And it's not very long until you see that that innocent child grows up and begins to display things that are, are lusts for things that aren't good for them. We have an appetite for destruction. We have an appetite for sin. And the major challenge that we face today is homosexuality seeks to blend what God has designed with what God, has, what God detests. Because in it, we see that there's, there's a sense in which there's a part of God's design It's not good for man to be alone. We are all needing, we're all looking for a close, intimate relationship, which is good, and it is godly. But God gives us the bounds to which that's okay and acceptable. But we have this deep desire to be known, to be loved, and it can get distorted. I get it. There's temptation to follow the attraction of sinful nature. It's strong. I I know there are lots of men that have the the strong, deep desire to be with a lot of women. Right? So though that person, a man, has a deep desire to be with a lot of women, should he give himself over to that? Absolutely not, especially if he's in a married relationship. A person might have an attraction or a strong, deep desire for more material possessions. Should a Christian give themselves over to that? No, we shouldn't. We, could, we should seek to consecrate ourselves to say, God, I, I know that this part of my heart that desires this is not from you. You've given me the balance to say what you've given me is good and it's enough. And you know what? Even though these desires may be super strong, they may rule the desires of our heart. They may rule the, 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 the content of our thoughts. As believers, we're called to die to these desires and hold fast to what is true. That's what makes us distinct. But he doesn't call us to live apart from that in our own strength and power. God has given us the freedom from sin, so we're no longer a slave to sin, but he's given us the spirit so that we can walk in godliness. That we no longer have to feed the flesh, but we can starve the flesh, starve the desires. I love what Paul writes in Romans chapter 6. 
verse 12. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Through Jesus' death and his resurrection, death and sin loses its power over those who believe in Jesus. And what Paul is here telling us is that what we're called to do is present our members, present our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. To say, Lord, here, I want to do righteousness. I want to be a a vessel of righteousness, so here I am. We sang a song earlier. I surrender all, I give you all to you. I lay myself down before you. That's the disposition of a believer. You're still gonna have temptations. You're gonna have temptations to cheat on your taxes. You're gonna have temptations to to speed in your car. You're gonna have temptation all the time. But the life of the believer says, I don't wanna give myself over to this. Instead, I wanna lay myself down. Each day we live in a world where we are bombarded with messages that seek to redefine sin, that seek to redefine sexuality, that seek to redefine identity. But what we as believers need to do is to continue to allow God's standard to be the standard to which we walk. And I know it's difficult. I know it's easy to sit up here and say, hey, this is right and this is wrong and all of that until sin has a face. Follow me. It's easy. I I know I've lived in that world. It's easy to to, to sit up on the the ivory tower and say, God has declared all of these things to be true, and they are true. And then someone that you love struggles with walking outside of God's design. Then what do you do? Well, God has said, wait a minute, did God really say? Because I love this person. I know this person. How can it be? I want you to understand today, church, family, is that we can't bring God's standard down. But it also means that we are not the ones that are called to judge. We can judge right and wrong. I can, I can clearly say, hey, that behavior's right, that behavior's wrong, my behavior's right, my behavior's wrong, but we can't go to making judgment of people. That's not ours to do. It's really difficult when sin has a face or sin lives inside of my own heart because, God, I don't want it to be true. I I, I don't want to allow my sinful nature to be reined in. I want want to do, the heart wants what the heart wants, right? But the heart is wicked and the heart is deceitful. And we bring our heart under the teaching and under the lordship of Christ. But here's the beautiful thing. In Romans chapter five, verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? God does the work of saving us from ourselves if we trust in him. Maybe you're here today and you struggle with same-sex attraction. Maybe for the first time you have heard that it is a sin 
Not the attraction, but the acting out on that. Maybe you, and you're like, okay, so what do I do? What do we, any of us do when we realize that we're in sin? But we realize it, and then we seek to repent. We come to God and say, God, I realize that, that the way that I'm walking and the way that I'm feeling and the way that I'm thinking are in direct contradiction to your word. Lord, help me. That's what we all do when we come to salvation. We're like, God, I realize I'm a sinner. I need your help. Lord, help me. So we repent. We confess our sins, and we repent. That means we turn by the God's power. We turn to walk in a new way. That means we need to stop justifying our sin. It might mean that you need to end a relationship. right? Because here's the thing. Even though cohabitation is a sin, there's a way in which that which is outside of God's design can come into God's design by the couple getting married. In a homosexual relationship, it doesn't, it, there's no ending to where that can come under God's design. And so relationship needs to end but then you consecrate yourself to the lord every day lord let me be your vessel 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 and allow the holy spirit to work inside of you we don't have time to fully unpack that even more but if you're here like we're we're a church that loves we're a church that loves. We, we know the truth. We're going to stand for the truth. But we want to walk with you in your sin, regardless of what it is, without judgment, but moving towards holiness because we're all striving for holiness. Or maybe you're here today and you know someone in your life that struggles with sexual attra- same-sex attraction and you're wondering, how should I respond? Well, let me remind you, everybody in your life is struggling with sin. Look at the person to your left. Look at the person to your right. Look at the person that's up on stage. We are all struggling with sin. Right? How do we live in this world? Sin is sin, right? You have a different appetite for sin. You have a different, I have a different appetite for sin. We are all struggling with sin. So what do we do? We communicate the gospel. Right? If we imagine for a moment we're we're missionaries and we go to an unreached people group in Africa, right? We walk into this village and we're meeting the chief, we're meeting all the people around, and we come and realize that, hey, guess what? This this um, this tribe practices polygamy. Do we then, as missionaries, meet up in our in our place and say, okay, guess what? We gotta we gotta like package the gospel as an anti-polygamy gospel. Is that what we do? Is that what we do? No. No, because that's not the problem. The problem is sin, right? These, this group of people that we've just met from this village are sinners in need of a savior. So what do we bring them? We bring them the gospel. We say, guess what? You're far from God. I'm far from God. But guess what? I found Jesus, and Jesus cured me from my sin. And we'll get to polygamy. Because it has to. Because it's, 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 it's against God's word. But you don't lead with that. You lead with the fact, hey, guess what? I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we need Jesus. Because sin and the cross levels the playing field. It makes us all in need of a Savior. Now, I know I've gone over, but I've had eight weeks. (laughs) 
I apologize to our children's workers. Uh, I'll give them a gift. But I I don't want to make light of God's word. But yet, church, we need to walk in truth and love together. So I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe, maybe you're, the Holy Spirit has been convicting you of some, something in your life that's outside of God's design. Don't leave here this morning not having dealt with it. Bring it before the Lord. Maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord. Maybe you've never come into a relationship with the Lord. I would love to meet you out in the lobby after we, after we pray. You come to me and say, just pastor, I, I, need, I need prayer, I need help. Tell me more about Jesus. I would love to do that. Or we can make an appointment this week. Or maybe you came with someone and you just have some questions. Maybe this has spurred some good questions. Enjoy that conversation. Engage in that conversation. And the person that brought you to, they may not have all the answers, but together we can. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words today. Thank you for your truth. And Father, we thank you for your grace. For without your grace, we would not be able to survive. Father, we also know that there is wrath, that you care deeply about your glory and you care deeply about our holiness. And so, Father, I pray that in this moment you would just continue to work in our hearts however you need to work. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. But, Father, may we feel your presence now and respond accordingly. Father, we need your grace. We need your mercy and we need your love. So move in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.